So as uh, so we're in the midst of a series as followers of Jesus, we believe that there is a way to live, a way that is identified with Jesus, that Paul called this way of living the way of love. And uh, while this way of Jesus is different than the way that many in the world live, we believe that this way of living is the best way to live. And what I've been using, uh, kind of framing this series, is uh, talking about that uh, three, three things that Randy mentioned uh, when, in our preaching planning meeting. And he had said uh, that our world is broken, that you and I are responsible for the brokenness, and you and I are responsible to fix it that we have responsibility for this broken world. And so I, that's kind of been stuck in my head as, we, as we're going through this series, that it's not just about the way, how I can live a life that will make my life better, but when I live this way, when I live this way of Jesus, I can influence the world and have an impact on our world, and I can bring change to our world. So that, that's kind of where I've been stuck as we've been looking at this series and, and those things, because what I do believe is that the church, the local church, this place right here, our place in Voorhees, and all the other local churches around the world, that the church is the world's best hope, and it is the world's only hope. And it is the best way to live, that when, when the church is healthy and there's healthy community, it is an inspiring and it is a, a beautiful place to be a part of. So living the way of Jesus, this way of love, can bring healing to our world. So it's not just this self-serving way that I can live, but it's a way that we can live as a community. So uh, another thing that, uh, a distinction that I made last week, and I want to make it again, is it's important as we move forward in this series that following Jesus' way is more than about memorization. It's more than about intellectual assent. That when Jesus talked about these things that we'll be talking about, that he was talking about a personal experience, that he was talking about a lifelong relationship and journey, that we don't want to add to do things to our list, that it's not about doing these things, it's about understanding and believing, and that changes our lives, and it changes the way that we live. So, so we're not creating to-do lists, we're looking at ways that we can be inspired, and ways that we can uh, uh, change our lives, because we're following in the way of Jesus, okay? So all of that is kind of uh, uh, just to let you know where we're at, and uh, this morning, we're going to start in a tent, then we're going to go to a garden, and then we're going to go on a word search through the New Testament. So in case you think, where are we going? That's the direction. We're going to start in a tent in the Old Testament. Then we're going to go to a garden in the New Testament. And then we're going to do a little romp through uh, a couple of epistles, okay? But before we do that, I want to give you some background, some texture, some content, uh, context to, to these things. And I'm going to start with a book, one of my favorite children's books. Uh, and it's really a children adult book. It's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You've probably all heard it. You've seen, maybe seen a movie about it. It's a children's book with theological meaning. And so the story, if you're unaware, is about four children who enter Narnia through a wardrobe that's filled with fur coats. And as they push further and further through the wardrobe, they find that they have entered into this land of Narnia. And Narnia, when they arrive, is, is, um, 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 is uh, controlled by an evil white witch. But throughout the story, there is talk of a lion named Aslan. 
and Aslan is rumored to be returning to Narnia. And the children meet a beaver. Actually, they meet a couple, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And now, the, just like all children's books, the animals talk. And so these four children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they have a conversation about Aslan. And the conversation is this. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than me or else just silly. To which Lucy, the youngest child, says, then Aslan isn't safe? And Mr. Beaver answers and says, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? And then Mr. Beaver says this, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so we get this first foreshadowing, this first mention of Aslan who is great, who's a mighty lion, who is fearsome, who is dangerous. He's good, but not safe. He's Aslan, who is the God character, who is good, but not safe. And so Lucy and the children of Narnia become intrigued and drawn towards this dangerous lion, a lion who is good, but not safe. And I tried to capture, tried to think of this idea of what does it mean to be good, but not safe. And I came up with this story. I hope it works. It works for me anyway. Uh, I used to wrestle with my children when they were younger. They're all older now. They're 23, 19, and 16, and so it's a little weird to wrestle with them now. Uh, but I used to wrestle with them when they were toddlers. And I used to play a game with Carissa. Carissa's in the room right now. And Carissa and I played a game called The King of the Couch. Now, the king, some people might call this lazy parenting. I think it's efficient parenting. Because what would happen is while mom was in the kitchen doing whatever needed to be done after dinner, handling the other children, whatever, and I was occupying Chris and giving her some time, uh, I thought I could lay on the couch and we play a game, let's try and push daddy off the couch. And so Carissa, at one and a half, two years old, would pull on me and tickle me and jump on top of me and figure out a way to get me off the couch. And while she was doing that, my defense would be to pull back and tickle her and do those things that would make her giggle and laugh, and we'd roll around. And eventually, every once in a while, she'd push me off the couch, and then I'd find a way, and then she'd lay there, and I'd find a way to roll back up under the couch and pull her off. Here's the little secret. I controlled the game. I am bigger and stronger than a two-year-old. Still am today. But my 30-something body was certainly bigger and stronger than any two-year-old. And I was the parent. So that meant that I decided when the game started and when the game ended. And actually, mom decided when the game started and when the game ended. But you know what I mean, that I kind of had some control over when the game started and when the game ended. And in all ways, my 30-something build was no match for a two-year-old. I'm not safe to a two-year-old. I could conquer a two-year-old. But I'm dad. And I love my kids. And I would never intentionally harm my kids. I'm good. As parents, we're good. 
but we're not safe, right? We control everything. We control, we control curfew for crying out loud still, right? We control these things. Aslan is good, but not safe. And Aslan represents in these stories of Narnia a God who is omnipotent, has unlimited power, and has unlimited goodness. And so with all that as our framework and all that kind of as our context, now let's go to a tent. It's up on the screen. It's from Exodus chapter 33. It says this. Whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, all the people would get up and they'd stand in the entrance of their own tents. They would all watch Moses until he disappeared inside. Okay, uh, let me say what's going on here. Is that as the ancient Israelites had left uh, Egypt, they're traveling, they're a nomadic tribe, they would uh, travel, and when they came to a place where they would settle, that everyone would unpack their tents, set up their tents, and Moses had set up a, a, a tent separate from the camp, which was the tent called the tent of meeting, and this was the place where God's presence would dwell. It wasn't in the center in the tabernacle. That's later. This is early on. It's called the tent of meeting. And the reason that tent was established is that there needed to be a place in a vast desert where Moses and God could meet. And the Old Testament tells us that Moses or that God would tr would lead the Israelites during the day as a cloud and at night it would be fire. And when Moses would set up this tent, when God would choose to dwell in the tent, the representation of God, which was this cloud, it would come down and hover over top of this tent of meeting. Now, here's something that's interesting that you may have not known about, uh, about this story, is that this is unique for a God to do. That in ancient times, gods during the Old Testament were never present. They were always represented. They're represented by an idol or an image. This is unique to Yahweh. Moses would set up a tent so that, not so that an idol could be placed inside of it. A tent was set up so that the presence of God could be in there. This God is different from all other gods. This is a God who's intimate and who is, has a desire to connect with humanity. So then Moses, as he would go into the tent, the pillar of this cloud of, uh, or this, this smoky cloud would then come down and it would hover over the entrance and it says that God would speak with Moses. And when the people saw the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, it says that all the other people, the millions of Israelites who were there, would all bow down outside at the front of their own tents. And then verse 11 says this. It's up on the screen. Inside the tent of meeting, get this. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. A good but not safe God was present and would speak to Moses. Now notice it says face-to-face -face as one speaks to a friend. God's not there physically. There's this conversation that takes place. Not literally face-to-face, -face, but 
as one speaks, the writer says. And so I began thinking as I was preparing, how does God, or excuse me, how do I talk to my friends? You know, the people that I work with, I'm friendly with. The people my family, I'm friendly with. The people I golf with, I'm friendly with. People I get to know. I have varying degrees of friendships, right? We all do. But I started to think, I just started making a list. How do I talk to my friends? Uh, Honestly, I hope. Openly. Relaxed. When I'm with my friends, I feel relaxed, comfortable. Uh, knowingly, I know their stories, they know my stories. We're familiar. When I'm with my friends, it's conversation. It's not just me just talking and talking and talking like I am now. It's a conversation. It's a dialogue. It's sharing thoughts and ideas with each other. I notice along with my friends, I can pick up where I left off. And my closest friends, I can even communicate in silence. You ever notice that? If you ever get an Uber or a Lyft, you get in the car and you're like, ah, at least I do. I'm like, I got to have an uncomfortable conversation. So how long you been doing this? Right? That's always the first question, right? But someone picks you up in the airport, your closest friends, your spouse, silence is fine, right? It's okay. Because you can communicate even in silence. So familiar immediately, the present were thorough. But notice it says, as a friend. God's the superior in this relationship, but it says that he spoke to Moses as a friend. No show of authority. Transparent and near. Then the writer of Exodus goes on to give us an example of what God and Moses would talk about. And so it's up on the screen. One day Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, Take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You've told me, I know you by name, and I look favorably on you. So you imagine, this is, this is the kind of friendship Moses and God have, is that he's saying, hey, you're, you know, last time we were talking, this is what you said. They're comfortable enough. God, Moses is comfortable enough to talk to God in this way. And he says, if it's true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. Like, God, just don't forget. Don't forget that, God. So Moses here is expressing some real concern. He doesn't fully trust God. He's, you know, if it's true, I want to understand more fully. And then the Lord replied. I will personally go with you, God. Excuse me, I'll personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Again, this is another example of where Yahweh is completely unique from all the other Old Testament gods and goddesses. All other gods had a location, had a region. They were the god of a certain area. They had a home. 
Yahweh says, I go with you. I travel when you travel. I go with you. And then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all the other people on the earth. See, Moses realizes this. Moses recognizes that having a, a God like Yahweh who travels with them is unique. It sets them apart. It makes them different. And then the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you, and I know you by name. God says, I will be there. You have found faith. You have found favor. You are my friend. See, we tell our friends everything. We tell our friends stories. We tell our friends uh, about the small things, about the big things. We tell our friends all things. We tell them how we're feeling, what's currently going on in life, what we'd like to see. We talk about the pros and cons of a decision that may come up. We talk about, hey, how are you? How are the kids? How's everybody doing? And so we talk to our friends with that kind of comfort. So we're in this series where we're talking about prayer and the way of Jesus. How did Jesus live this way? And for for Jesus, as I said last week, Jesus prayed a lot. Jesus talked about prayer a lot. And so how can we develop this way of living? How can we learn to pray the way Jesus prayed? So we go from a garden or excuse me, from a tent to a garden. We prayed already that Jesus, our, uh, our Lord's prayer that Heather led us in, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy, that Jesus talked about God as a father, as a parent figure. One of the closest relationships, right? If you want to know someone who knows a lot about you, think about your mom and dad. But Jesus, while in the garden, gave an intimate example of the closeness that is possible with God. Mark's gospel, which was likely Peter's account, Peter was one of the disciples, and Peter, uh, Mark would have been too young. Mark was actually a a young boy when Jesus was alive. And so uh, uh, Peter likely had Mark as a protege, and Peter told the stories to Mark which is why we get this account of how Jesus prayed, because Peter would have been there just a a ways away. And so Mark 14 writes this, Abba, Father. Brennan Manning in his book, Abba, Child, says this, that Jewish children use this intimate colloquial form of speech in addressing their fathers. And Jesus himself would have used the same term when speaking to his earthly father, Joseph. It's like saying daddy. It's like saying daddy. As a term of divinity, this is unprecedented. Just like the Yahweh who is unprecedented in that he doesn't have a location. He doesn't have a a home idol base. That he travels in a tent. God is unique in that he can be addressed as daddy. Brennan Manning goes on to say that Abba, as a way of addressing God, is an authentic, original utterance of Jesus. Something new and astounding. 
that in Mark chapter 14 in the garden, in Jesus' most intense moments before he's about to be arrested, he cries out to his father and calls him daddy. And Brennan Manning says this is an original utterance of Jesus, something new and astounding. So why would I tell you that? Why would we go from the tent to the garden? Why would we go from this dialogue that Moses has with Yahweh, this Yahweh that, that does not have a home location, is not bound to a, an image, but travels with his people, and then we move to a garden where there is Jesus in this most uh, intense moment, and he prays to his God and uses the word daddy to describe him is that word Abba is only used three times in the entire Bible. The first time right there in Mark chapter 14. The next two times, it's used by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to Christians, first in the city of Galatia, and then also in the city of Rome. And in both of those instances, he says this. In Galatians, we have that. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. And then in Romans, he says this, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Daddy, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And Brennan Manning says this, Jesus, the beloved son, does not hoard this experience for himself. He invites and he calls us to share the same intimate and liberating relationship. That the greatest gift you and I have ever received from Jesus is that we get to have the Abba experience as well. So now back to C.S. Lewis. Mr. Beaver said, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is our friend. God is our unsafe, dangerous maybe, but good Heavenly Father. And we have been given the right to call God by the most intimate parental name, Daddy. So at the end of the book in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan has gone through this sacrificial time where he offers himself in replacement for, for Edmund. And he is killed. And then Aslan is resurrected. And at that resurrection experience, Aslan says this. He says, oh, children, I feel my strength coming back to me. Oh, children, catch me if you can. He stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. This giant, ferocious lion, mighty and strong, is about to play with the children. Then he made a leap high over his heads, over their heads, and landed on the other side of the table. Laughing, though she didn't know why, Lucy scrambled over to reach him. Aslan leaped again, and a mad chase began. 
Aslan plays king of the couch. So I tell you all these things for this simple challenge. I think that our conversations with God can be honest and real. Like the honesty we talked about last week. Saying, God, I am in this situation. I am in this predicament. I have this circumstance. And God, I don't like it. And God, I need you to come in and I need you to rescue me from this. God, we need help. God, we live in a broken world. And the brokenness is clear every day. This week we prayed for uh, an officer here in Mount Laurel Township. Uh, she died suddenly. And the police department is, is dealing with that death. That's because of our broken world. I read the news every morning. Uh, I read it on, a, on my iPad. I don't read a paper, but I read the news every morning. And, and I can slide through, and sometimes it takes a while to find the first positive story. And so we can be honest and real with God and say, God, this world is broken. And God, it hurts. It hurts. We can talk to God without all the drama. There doesn't be, there's, it doesn't have to be. God, how, how, do I, how do I talk to you? It's an intimate conversation. Kyle Lake wrote a book called Conversations with God. And he says in it that prayer is a spot that we can go to just as surely as our church sanctuary is a place. That when we pray, we are going into a place that is built with words. Not a tent, like Moses, but still a place. Not necessarily physical, but yet still a place. And then he goes on to say, it's not something, though, when we, he's talking about how to teach people to pray, and he says, it's not something that we can strip down and reduce and formulate into a seven-step process. Still, there needs to be some way for us to describe what it means to pray. And I thought, it's kind of like trying to describe how you created your relationship with your spouse. You can't narrow it down into seven steps. But yet you probably can remember the first time you met. And you can probably remember the first conversation that you had. But how do you describe it? How do you explain it? It starts with simple steps. Remember the first time Kelly and I went out, it was for ice cream at the boardwalk in Ocean City. We probably talked about things. I don't remember any of them. But if I were to tell you how did we get to be friends for 35 years and married for 28, it started with chocolate ice cream at Ocean City Boardwalk. Our actual very first date was Maundy Thursday service. I invited her to prayer service. Dude, is that like, that's a killer invitation, <laughs> let me tell you. Right there, she should have known what she was getting herself into. 
but our first, like, Friday night out date. Chocolate ice cream at Ocean City Boardwalk. And I don't know how it happened since, except that it was small conversations, one after another, one after another, one after another. So some things. Without narrowing it down to seven steps, I'm going to do it in three. (laughs) How to start a conversation with God. First one, find a spot. Jesus used to set time aside in, in a place. Maybe it's your car, maybe it's a train, maybe it's your favorite chair. For me, it's not a place, it's a book. I write in a journal. And when I have my journal out, that's my time to talk to God. And I gripe in it, and I pray in it, and I thank God for things in it. Uh, someone advised me to, when we started this campus, to start a brand new one. So in March, uh, I didn't do it in January because I don't like wasting paper and I wanted to finish the one I had. So I just started writing a lot bigger so that I would fill out the pages. It's just a psychological weird thing for me. And so I finally, and then somebody gave me one. They gifted me a journal and then I felt, okay, that's a good reason to, uh, to switch. So on March 1st, I switched to a new journal. And, uh, and so that is going to be my campus journal. That's what it's going to become in the end. It's, it's gonna, I'm going to hold on to it. And there's a lot of griping in there, folks, um, about you people. No. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not. But there's a lot of blessing. There's a lot of blessing. Man, let me tell you, this last couple of weeks, all I've been talking about in my journal is the community center. God, how could you bless us with a place like this? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah. And, uh, and there's lots of things in there that, that uh, and I go back and reread it. So find a spot. First thing, find a spot. Second thing is pray specifics. Pray specifics. Remember, God's interested in the details. God cares about your late train. He cares about uh, the bills. He cares about what's going on. He cares about what you're frustrated with. He cares about what you're happy about. He cares about the details. And then I guess the way I would describe any relationship is start small, dream big, and keep going. So now, that might be uh, a little too much. Maybe that's just too much right now. You're going, all right, I can't do that. I'm not going to pray like that. I'm not going to get a journal. I'm not going to find a spot. I'm not going to do any of those things. All right, I've got this one. I think this is genius, and I didn't come up with it, but I think it's genius, okay? Do you remember the movie Bruce Almighty way back from uh, the 90s maybe? All right. All right. Anyway, in that movie, Jim Carrey is the guy. He plays God for a day or a week, and he has to. He finds out he's responsible for all the prayers that come in, and so he decides to be efficient. And he has remember the pagers. He has a beeper, and he, there's a phone number attached to the beeper. It's two four zero seven seven six two three two three. It used to be on the screen. We lost that slide. Let me say it again, though. You're gonna write this down. It's two four zero. 7762323 The reason that's important is that somebody was brilliant enough to turn that into God's cell phone. And I am not kidding you, you can text that number. Oh really? <laughs> now you want me to say it again. It's 240 240776 2323. You can even Google that number and you'll go to a website. And when you go to that website, your prayers are listed there. And I did it this morning and you can see uh, the prayer. It's a Maryland phone number that somebody decided to keep active and it receives text messages. I put it in my phone and my contacts as God. 
thought about Yahweh, but we're a little more personal than that, so I went with God. Here's why I'm recommending texting God. It can make the conversation familiar. It also can get you straight to the point. It reminds me that God is always there. And it can help me to pray at times when other times of praying may seem too difficult. Standing in line, not at a traffic light. We don't do that. But that God is not distant. God is not hard to reach. That God is interested in the intimate little details of my life. 240-776-2323. Text God. See, how we live matters. This world is broken and you and I have responsibility. And we're responsible for why it's like this. And so when tragedies strike, like a hurricane in the Gulf Coast, or when an officer is, is, is killed, we have a faith that matters. And we have a faith in a God who's interested in the details of our life and in the lives of the people around us. And he's doing more than just hovering and dwelling inside a tent. You have an intimate relationship with God, as close as a parent and a friend. A relationship that we can be honest like a child speaking to a parent. And that this is the way of Jesus. It is life-giving and life-affirming and the best way to live life. Will you stand with me for closing prayer? And so God, I thank you. God, I thank you that you hear and are interested in in all things that involve us. The good, the bad, the ugly. The bright spots and the pretty dim spots. And so God, I pray that as men and women of faith, that as we are in this broken and flawed world, that as we live the way of Jesus, people would see that we have this intimate connection to you. That we have a way to address and deal with the things of life that sometimes are so horribly wrong. And God, I pray that we would be an influence and a catalyst of the world around us. And that people would see our faith and see the way we address a God who dwells with us and in us and through us. And God, we thank you for all these things, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. And as you go, go knowing that there's a God that loves you with his whole heart, that he loves you enough that he'd rather die and vacate, vacate heaven and die than live without you, and that there's a world just outside those doors that is desperate to know that kind of love. Amen. Have a great day.